We have been journeying our way through Nehemiah this fall, exploring uh, lessons from a place in Scripture where people had to work out what was next. What was next for them in, in, in a world that was uncertain, in a world that they, they couldn't really see what was coming. And it, it's a great parallel for where we sit today, both as a church and as a society as a whole. But I don't really think it's, it's just because of, of COVID. Every Wednesday, we, we get together for a sermon-based Bible study out here in, in the, the prayer garden. And this last Wednesday, it was mentioned that to a degree, the, the pandemic highlighted or, or maybe even sped up some of the realities that we're facing today. But a lot of what we're facing today was already happening. I mean, we weren't all wearing masks before March 2020, but there, there was a lot going on. In our world, there was a lot of division, a lot of angst, a lot of pain that was already taking place. I mean, think about it for a moment. What was the decade like for you between 2010 and 2020? How did, how did that decade start differently than this decade did before COVID hit? How much has changed in our world? How much has changed in our country? How much has changed in, in, in our church? One of the foundational lines of our, our tradition, some of you have heard me say it before, is that we as a church believe we are called to be reformed and always reforming according to God's word. It's a stated commitment to continual growth, to continually finding new ways to understand Scripture and how to live out Scripture in our everyday lives. Now, it's something that we claim to believe in as a denomination, as a church. But it's not always easy. Change isn't always easy. Last Sunday, we reached a place in Nehemiah where uh, the work had begun on Jerusalem's walls. 42 different groups, 42 different family groups had worked their way around Jerusalem. Remember, it was about two to two and a half miles, and, and, and they, they began rebuilding. There were men and women, there were rulers and priests, there were merchants and perfumers. It wasn't just construction workers and builders and contractors that were working on this wall. It was everyone. Everyone had a part. I asked us to think about what, what that might look like in our world today. What might it look like for us to all have a part both here at WPC as well as in our society as we, we begin to kind of open up to whatever it is that, that is next? What does it look like for us all to have a role? As the work is under, underway, a few leaders from neighboring countries, they, they take notice and they start mocking What's happening in, in Jerusalem? You, you all can't really do this. This, this isn't something that you're going to succeed at. Don't you remember who you are? You, you were just in captivity. You were just in exile. What, what are you trying to do? Nehemiah, he finds out about a, a planned attack, and then he, he leans into this gift that he's been given. He's, he's a great organizer, and he organizes once again. Half the people will continue to work on the wall. The other half will stand guard night and day looking out in case an attack comes. Now, we know that the rebuilding of the wall took just over two months, which is crazy to think about. It's taken us over two months to do the courtyard. But we're not exactly sure how long the people in Jerusalem who helped to build the wall 
had been there before the work began. It wasn't a long time in biblical terms at all. We we do know that, probably a, a generation or two at most. But you can imagine that as the work begun, that they kind of got that feeling of, oh, something, change is coming. Change is, and they got kind of restless. They were, they were looking forward. They could see the light at the end of the tunnel. They were going to be an established people again. They were going to have their city again. It was time. They could see it. And then the, the first part of Nehemiah chapter 5, it tells us that, that many of the, the, the poorer and the working class people, they had begun to grow weary. They waited. And they were willing to sacrifice what they could for Jerusalem to be restored, but their patience was wearing thin. They were running out of food. They couldn't afford their fields. They couldn't afford to pay taxes. They needed help. They needed help. Some even had to sell their sons and daughters into slavery to pay their debts and to top it all off. It was their own people, other Jews, who were taking advantage of them. Then in chapter 5, verse 6, we read this. When I heard their outcry and these changes, I was very angry. I pondered them. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us? They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out May God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work of this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We we did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God. 
for all I have done for these people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yesterday, I I read the story of of Willa and Charles Bruce. Have any of you been following this story at all? You may or may not have heard of it. They were a couple that bought a bunch of property in Manhattan Beach in 1912 uh, when Jim Crow laws limited access to to the beach for for all people. They, they, They started a resort specifically for black families, and it angered their white neighbors. Willa worked at and ran this, this resort while Charles kept his job as a chef on the train that ran between L.A. and Salt Lake City. In 1924, the Manhattan Beach Board of Trustees voted to condemn the land that the Browns owned and assumed control of the property through eminent domain. Until this past week, Bruce's Beach, which is now a, a beachfront park, was owned by the city, owned by the city of Manhattan Beach, all because of a decision made by the Board of Trustees almost a 100 years ago. Now, the city of Manhattan Beach, the the county, L.A. County, and California, they seemed to be in agreement that something had to be done about this, but but there wasn't an agreement about how to get that something done. What what did it look like? Getting to the place where, where they arrived this past week hasn't been easy, It wasn't just straightforward. On top of all of the the legal red tape, what about the folks who had absolutely no part in that decision but use the park daily today? What about the the current neighbors who who bought their houses thinking they were living right next to a, a park for thousands of times more than what the Browns paid? What about, what about them or the Bruce family paid? What, what about them? The pursuit of justice is rarely a straight path. Rarely a straight path with, with simple or easy answers. I was talking with a, a friend yesterday and was talking through this, this story, and he said, you know, we live in a society that loves to, to preach and teach the, the golden rule, do unto others as you would like others to do unto you. We, we, we love to teach it, we love to talk about it, until living by that golden rule means we have to sacrifice something, until we have to give up a right of our own. Sometimes... Oftentimes, I should say, as we see with Nehemiah, making a wrong right requires a a commitment to listening to others and to understanding our own responsibility, the own responsibility that, that we carry. It shouldn't be a surprise to any of us, and I I hope I I can say this without uh, really you feeling like I'm pointing a, a finger at you, but no one here in the sanctuary is perfect. None of us is, none of us is, is perfect. And we've all wronged a person at one point in our lives. All of us. Shoot, I can think of ways that I wronged my family in the last 24 hours. Yelling at one of my kids for touching the Halloween display I was putting out. Snapping at my wife for a scheduling snafu. <laughs> right? We, we've all wronged people. Again, It's a part of the reason that we include a prayer of confession 
every time we gather at the Lord's table. So in this chapter, Nehemiah gives us at least, uh, probably more than four, but at least four lessons about what we can do to help make wrongs right in our lives. And it really starts with something simple. It starts with, with listening. It starts with listening. He doesn't tell the people who come to him to stop whining. Suck it up. He doesn't tell them that. He doesn't tell them that they're wrong or give them a hard time because they're in a different social class. He listens. As a kid, I had more than one teacher explain to me the difference between hearing and listening. And it usually started with something like this. It usually started with something, David, that's what I'm called when I get in trouble. David, how many ears do you have? Two. How many mouths do you have? One. Use them. And then it would follow up on on the difference between how hearing is functional. You know, the noise that we hear in the peanut movies? Wah, 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 wah. That's hearing. And listening. Actually paying attention. It takes time. It takes effort. It requires us to be open to, to new information. And sometimes that new information is uncomfortable. So as a church, it's always important for us to be asking the question of, are we truly listening? Are we, are we really paying attention to one another? The, the needs and hurts and pains within our own community? Are we open even when it's difficult? Do we listen to one another? And what about beyond our community? Do we listen to our family members, to our, our, our neighbors beyond this church? Do we listen? After Nehemiah listens, he, he considers what, what, he's, what he's heard. He thinks deeply. The, the word that we hear is he, he ponders. He ponders it. He doesn't just brush it aside. He doesn't just act out. The, the picture painted by the word that's used here is of a person wrestling with serious thought. I actually think that when Jesus went away to be by himself, he, he definitely spent time in prayer, but, but he also did this. He pondered what he saw, what he observed, and, and thought through, what, what am I going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? It would have been easy for Nehemiah to come up with a, a quick response, to, to either react to the injustice with kind of a, a knee-jerk reaction, or, or to dismiss it, but he doesn't do that. He thought about it first. I recently read that, that thinking before we respond is like getting a hold of a, a wayward hose in our backyard, right? That's spraying all over. You turn on the hose, it's spraying all over. And all your intent to do is to just water one, one plant. So to focus our attention before we respond is, is grabbing a hold of that hose and saying, okay, this is the one thing I'm responding to. It takes effort to craft an effective response. We need to think before we, we respond. But, but then we have to do that. We have to actually respond appropriately. And that's what Nehemiah does. He, he goes to the upper class, the nobles, the officials, and effectively says, we've been taking advantage of our own people, and it's wrong, and we need to stop. In his mind, they had fallen into this rhythm where some of their people were being treated just as poorly now that they were 
free, technically, from, from the Babylonians. They were free from exile. They were back, but they were still being treated terribly, and something needed to change. He says, guys, we are better than this. We are, we are better than this. We've forgotten our identity, and honestly, we're only hurting ourselves. The two offenses are, are fairly simple. The upper class had taken to owning their own people as slaves first. And secondly, they began charging unreasonably high interest that completely prevented anyone who needed a loan from kind of moving up the, the social ladder. He calls out to the offenders, which included himself. Did you notice that? He doesn't point fingers. He says, I've been doing it too. To restore the, the, the personal property that they had, had purchased. To, to, to restore and return the collateral that they had collected for loans. He, he knew that a key component of making things right in his community and, and moving Jerusalem forward was making sure that everyone was whole, that they were better as a people when everyone was whole. Now it looks different for us today. But what, what are the areas where we see brokenness in the world and we can actually do something about it what what are the areas where we can actually take responsibility for some of what we we see what are the injustices around us that are begging for a well thought out response what might you need to say or when i should say might you need to say those three very difficult words to say i was wrong where might you need to say that in your own life with a family member, with a, a friend, with somebody in the church? I was wrong. Nehemiah is open to his failures. He doesn't try to hide them. And it's a refreshing quality that's often missing in the world today. But he doesn't just talk. He actually does something. Right? It's, it's not just talk. He didn't take the governor's pay that was, was typically used for entertaining guests or use his place of privilege to, to buy additional land, which other governors had done, which was his right to do. But he realized that would have only put more people in a disadvantaged place. He walked the talk and took steps to, to make the wrongs right that he could impact. So my question for us this week this, this month, really in this, this season as the world begins to open up a little bit, is what does that look like for us? What, what might it look like for us to be a part of, of making wrongs right that we look around the world and we say, there's something wrong here, and I can do something about it. Our world is as charged today as it's been in a long, long time. And it's been building for a long, long time. We're on edge about the pandemic, about a, a slew of other things. I'm inviting us to ask ourselves the question of where might we have contributed to some of that on edgeness that our world is experiencing? And what can we do about it? What can we do about it? There's a moment in the, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about seeking reconciliation with one another before gathering together for worship. 
And the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth that before uh, they're to gather at the communion table, that they are to stop and reconcile with one another. In some traditions, in some churches, they will actually do that in the middle of the service. And it will take a long time to stop and, and do that. But there is a reminder, there is an importance that, that this table really is about looking at the wrongs in our world and saying, wow, we can be a part of, of making them right because God reached out to us through the person of Jesus to make things right in our own lives as well as with one another. So much about this table, about this meal, is about making wrongs right between God and humankind and with one another as well. So as we celebrate together, may we remember our call to love God. May we remember our, our call to love neighbor and that we are loved by our creator ourselves. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious God, as we gather around this table, we give thanks. We give thanks for the, the greater community around the, the world that, that is gathering today, folks who, who follow you in all different cultures, in all different places. We lift them up. And we give thanks for being a part of such a, a big, diverse family. And Lord, as we, we gather around these elements in particular, we give thanks for them as well. We ask that you be with us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.